Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex. This is our Friday show. And as always, we have the gang here. On one hand of the Zoom, I've got Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello, and how are you? Hi, Alex. I'm great. It's almost Friday. It is. We record this on Thursday afternoons, which means that we're all kind of staring the weekend down because we all have stuff we like to do. For example, Natasha has a pasta cooking class that's going to be taking place on top of a mountain, which is very exciting. How did you know I was going to a mountain this weekend? (laughs) That was literally a complete guess, but I'm glad I nailed it. I'm going to Mount Shasta on Saturday, so that's crazy. Um, I'm excited about it. Are you bringing outdoor cooking equipment to make pasta on said mountain? I think indoor (laughs) cooking equipment for sure. But still so close for someone who had no idea what I'm doing this weekend. That's crazy. But we're not on the weekend yet. There's quite a lot to get through before we get there. So no dilly dallying from us. What are we talking about? Three things. The deals of the week are Guava, Pogo, and Tomo Credit. And if you're a startup expert, you'll note that those are all fintech companies. We have a fintech theme this week. We're going to talk about investment in fintech. And then we're going to close by talking about Coinbase, the SEC, and what a crypto digital asset security token thing may or may not be. Whew. But Marianne, the biggest news or one of the biggest stories of the week, it's been a busy week, is that Jack Ma is giving up control of Ant Group, according to the journal. I'm surprised and not surprised at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of controversy around this company, right, for the past couple of years. So in that sense, it's not shocking. But one of the things I found most interesting that I didn't realize is how Ant actually started to begin with. And it it started out as a payments processor, according to our wonderful reporter, Rita. And then it kind of just spun out of Alibaba because they needed to get a payments license and couldn't do that with investors like Yahoo and SoftBank. Anyway, that little tidbit was kind of fascinating, but yeah, big news today. And speaking of tidbits that stood out, I saw in Rita's story that Ma has stayed on as Ant's largest shareholder, which may not be surprising to some people, but it was surprising to me because the IPO prospectus from 2020 shows that he commanded 50.2% of its shares through an entity that he has control over. And that just seems like a lot compared to some of the ownership tables we're seeing these days, Alex. Well, the the whole Jack Ma, Alibaba, Ant story is long and interesting. There are books about this. I recommend you read them. I've read one of them. But essentially, Alibaba had a a host of co-founders that Jack brought into the group. The Ant spin-out, who owned what? That was controversial at the time, but Ant was most recently in our radar because the Chinese government scuttled its IPO, kind of kicking off, if you will, the technology crackdown that we've seen for several years in China, which has impacted venture capital returns, startup focuses, and the Natasha, as you, I'm sure, recall, the for-profit edtech sector in China. Oh, man. It was been a big deal. Pretty big deal. I mean, this has always been a controversial and impactful company to watch. So this transition, we've seen a lot of them. We've seen a lot of executives leave companies over the past year, but this one is, I think is the biggest I've seen to date. Yeah. But there's a slight difference between leaving a company because, you know, maybe you don't want to be in charge anymore or what happened to Jack Ma in China. Yeah. I wonder if he could leave the country if he wanted to. Yeah, that's a great question. Interesting business Mm -hmm. climate to say the least. But let's move on to startups. We are talking about three today. I want to start, Natasha, with Pogo and how they're building, quote, honey for the real world. And I presume we're not talking about a bee-derived suite. (laughs) So Pogo is a startup that I covered this week. It wants to be honey for the physical world. And honey, for people who don't know, kind of sits on your browser as you search through different websites and it pops up when there's a deal for a transaction that you're about to do. Pogo is trying to kind of help people connect 
all the different data sources in their life, whether it's transaction history or location history with them. And in return, they will show you things as you walk around, things in your inbox that you may not be aware of, but a deal that you, based on your transaction history, would definitely love to see. And it's kind of one of those other plays on cashback in a new way, which to me was really exciting as someone who's thinking a lot about personal finance for people all over the world. Yeah, Natasha, one of the things that stood out to me when I first read your draft in the edit stages was how is this company making money and is its model set up to really be successful in generating enough revenue in the long run? Yeah, I think actually even before revenue, maybe I'll try a little bit to give a little bit more context on how this app like really looks because if you're confused or if you're kind of feeling like this is pretty vague, it's because it's trying to do a lot, especially for a pre-seed startup. And so I'm just going to like quote the co-founder Dom Wong. Sure. Pogo makes it easy for you to aggregate your data in one place. It gives you the controls to get paid for use cases that you're comfortable with, whether that's anonymous market research or personalized marketing from trusted brands. And it kind of acts as like this financial agent, as he describes, that sees your spending and then makes suggestions either for deals or promotions you may know about or for more like background. Let me take this market research survey and get two bucks in cashback rewards to eventually turn into a Venmo. So it's kind of a play on a little bit of like there was this movement towards companies owning your data and not telling you and then making money off of it. Pogo is basically betting that users should have a choice in giving up their data. And if they're going to give up their data, why not make a buck out of it? So really just getting money to share your personal data is the root of this startup, which isn't entirely new. But I think with that fintech angle of trying to help people make money off of their data is what made it interesting to me. So they're being super transparent about the data part of it, which I feel like makes it stand out. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, and there's like a couple different versions of how much data you can give. They actually said most people opt in to share their location data, which to me was surprising. That is something that we definitely, I mean, I definitely would be the most reticent to give up more than Mm -hmm. like my -hmm. transaction history, which I don't don't know, that's a separate debate. But um, because if you give up your location data, you can just walk, see notifications and just seeing them will put money into your account. And that's kind of the promise that they're giving. There's also, if you connect your bank account, they might look at what you're paying for insurance and then suggest a cheaper plan. If you opt in, then Pogo makes money getting back to revenue and makes money through this kind of affiliate fee. Yeah. So I'm curious about how much money you can make doing this because I, going back to the days when I was younger and I had no money, sure, money is always good. And if I could make money by walking around, hell yeah, I used to live in San Francisco where Market Street exists. So if I could just make money by (laughs) going for a stroll, I would do it. But if it's eight cents, I don't care. And so my question is, how much am I getting back for essentially trusting Pogo to be a good steward of my data? And then comma, Mm -hmm. if I can make a lot of money, can I afford to rent an e-scooter and then scoot around to collect more affiliate income than I'm going to generate in scooter fees? And therefore, will I get paid to scoot? And does that save bird's share price? (laughs) Young I just pictured you on a scooter, Alex. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, it's amazing. I look like a complete dweeb, like always, but on a scooter in that case. I mean, so entrepreneurial. I actually would love to have the CEO to answer that. Um, but I will, I think like the first point you make is like the question to ask of Pogo and any startup that offers this idea of like a data dividend of you selling your own data Ooh. for money. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, for example, it's this nonprofit, Defense Civil Liberties. It's really against this idea because it is basically putting the power still in a company to place a price tag on your privacy. So it asks a lot of questions around like who will 
determine what the cost of certain data is and why is that data so valuable to certain companies at certain times. And we don't know the cost around certain fees. And so when I asked John for further information, he didn't share specifics. He said that there is like a market rate for lots of like specific data, but we still don't know what that average person gains from a data dividend and what do they lose in exchange for that, which yeah. is hard to get around. And mm-hmm. to be clear, another talking about challenges, like I'm thinking about the kind of people that are attracted to cash back. Let me optimize my entire life around making a few extra bucks in different corners. That's what stresses me mm. out about this, even well, though it's the, a really cool idea. The, the credit card point farmers don't tend to be people who are living on the edge of poverty, at least in my experience with people <laughs> that I know who do that. And so they were probably the people that are least likely to care about $3 from Pogo, but they are the people who would care a lot if it's 30 So maybe there's a market there. I'm not sure. It's a cool model. But Marianne, I want to talk about Tomo Credit next because this is a scratch of one of my biggest itches, which is my absolute (laughs) hatred of the American, quote, credit system, which is Mm -hmm. bullshit. So talk to me. Well, we agree on that, Alex. Tomo Credit, I've actually written about three times over the past year and a half. They've uh, The company's raised, yeah, three times. The latest is a $22 million round at a $222 million valuation. I love it when uh, founders are willing to share valuation figures. Mm. Cheers. Christy Kim is a South Korean immigrant who started the company initially targeting immigrants such as herself, international students who may come to the U.S., and they're not necessarily poor. (laughs) They have money, but they don't have the ability to get credit. So she's trying to solve for this problem with Tomo Credit and that she's offering it with 0% interest, pretty high credit limits, like up to $30,000. And they're basing it on this algorithm that they've developed that doesn't look at credit scores. It looks at cash flow. So it's a fascinating model. I have different thoughts about it. I'd say one, it can be great in that it doesn't rely on the credit score. And I really like that aspect of it. But secondly, though, it worries me a little bit because I feel like it's targeting only people who already have money. So those who don't have a lot of money or really need credit, but don't have cash, you know, they're excluded from this model. Yeah. If you want to get a vibe for how stupid the American credit market is, if you pay your rent on time, you get no credit points. But if you take out several credit cards and run up a balance on them to show you can handle credit, you get extra points. So proof that you can pay things back, no points. Taking on extra debt, points. Yes, it's backwards. It's stupid. It's predatory. It's also historically racist. And Marianne, why hasn't someone burned it down yet? I guess is my question. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a number of startups similar to Toma Credit trying to do like X1 raise last week. And they're also an income-based card. So, I mean, there are a lot of fintechs trying to disrupt this outdated, very antiquated model of determining who's worthy of credit. One of the things I noted in my newsletter last week, I feel like this current model, exactly to your point, Alex, it rewards the wrong people. And then like there are other people who get trapped in this cycle. So they can't get credit. They can't get credit to get a car, for example. So then they don't have a car to get to a job or to make money. So they're they're stuck in this vicious cycle. So that this frustrates me. But Anyway, Natasha, I think you have something to share. Yeah, I think just digging into one of the points you made earlier on this topic, the idea of who it impacts is really interesting to me. I was talking to Nina Mohanty, who's the founder of Blue Money, which is a really cool UK-based fintech. They're about creating a savings community, and it's a lot about focusing on historically overlooked people. And she was just saying, like, she was giving me kind of advice on how to approach covering fintech since it's a new beat. She was saying, like, the biggest question that you can keep asking people is, how inclusive is this really? And is it just making it easier for people who it's 
it's already easy for. Exactly. And like you said, I think this is for people who are somewhat well off. And so even more than a critique, I'm wondering, like, how is this startup finding enough traction, like the sweet spot of like someone who is kind of good enough to get a credit card, Mm -hmm. but not good enough to actually get a credit card. I feel like that tricky balance to me is so confusing. (laughs) Yeah, it's opened up. It's Target customer, like Target customers, no longer just international students. Okay. Christy says she realized that there are a lot of domestic students who have the same problem. So she realizes the addressable market is much larger than she expected. She claims that there's only a 0.11% default rate despite the no credit score. She says that's better than Amex. Of course, I don't have numbers exactly of how many cardholders there are. I, again, I'm all for any model that, you know, tries to go around the credit score, trying to upend that status quo, as we all seem, I think we all agree, it sucks and it's wrong and it's backwards. But I do want to make clear that it really, this is targeted toward people who already have money and just giving them access to credit they might not have otherwise had. So far. So far. Yeah. So, I mean, that could expand. It is still a startup worth one fourth of a unicorn. So, you know. Wow, yeah. It could could expand. But speaking about products that are going to hopefully make things a bit more accessible to some folks, Guava just raised $2.4 million. This is a black small business owner focused neobank. And there's two things going on here. One, the neobanking part of it's going to launch next year. But I've long had a question of what does it mean to really have a neobank aimed at a particular demographic? Because you hear about neobanks aimed at LGBTQ people. I mean, neobanks aimed at... uh, recent immigrants. And you can think about in the latter case, maybe built-in remittances would be important or something like that. But what do you bring to the table to really make a neobank different if it's checking accounts? So Guava has an answer. They are building a community inside their service for black small business owners. And the question then becomes, is that enough? And the answer is maybe, but here we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs in the United States, black women found more businesses per capita than white men, as Dominic points out in the story. And so, you know, when we think about SMBs, we should think about often people and women of color. So maybe this bank has a niche, maybe it has an angle on the market that's interesting, but I'm curious what we think about it. I love the angle of it being focused on black entrepreneurship. I think oftentimes when we see neobanks, they're focused on people struggling in some mm-hmm. sort of way or just being from a lower income background. If you are historically overlooked, sometimes the neobank will also focus on all your other issues. And I feel like, and hopefully this comes out the right way, but I feel like I like that it's focused on like black success and black entrepreneurship. Yeah. And how do we make that more and scale that versus fundamentals? And I think that like, there's still obviously so much demand for both, but I haven't seen too many, speaking of interesting angles, like I think Guava is betting big and, and betting smart here. It's different than what I've seen when I see demographic focused neobanks these days. Yeah. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. I would say over the past year and a half, I covered so many neobanks targeting very specific demographics from Asian American to Hispanic to Black to uh, LGBTQ. But I agree with Natasha completely. This is the first one that I've seen that targets entrepreneurs specifically. I have seen other Black-focused banks. I think two, one was First Boulevard, another was Greenwood based out of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But I really love that it's focused on the entrepreneur. I do think, you know, I am skeptical sometimes of being too niche. Right. But in this case, I feel like it could really work because I feel like there's a, a need, a big need for something like this in this country. Yeah. And I was trying to pull some more information for us on kind of what the banking side of this is going to look 
like. And the website, iGuava, is a little bit nascent because the service isn't live yet, but it does have a focus on having a very low fee structure and essentially having lots of space for even maybe micro businesses by not having account minimum. So more to come on that. The larger point here, I think, is that neobanks are still being funded. Data point for all of us who thought that was done at the end of last year. We were wrong. Mm -hmm. But speaking about trends that were hot and popping in 2021, one of those was the solo GP. And Marianne, it turns out that someone has decided to break away from the good iceberg Andreessen and instead (laughs) float as an ice cube on the oceans themselves. Yeah. So in the fintech world, Rex Salisbury is known for having been a partner at Andreessen and he was there for about two years. But prior to that, he got into fintech. He was actually, he was a software engineer for like a mortgage company, a digital mortgage company. And he, he just sort of fell into fintech, I think. And then he just became really passionate about it. And he wanted to meet more people who were as crazy about this concept as he was. And we're talking back 2015, way before fintech was what it is today and seen as cool and mainstream. So he started a community called Cambrian and just just to get people who were into fintech together, do meetups and, and have this community and built it up a lot over the years. I think he has a newsletter of like 15,000 now, things like that. So he caught the attention of Andreessen actually in about, I think, 2019 that he became okay. a partner there. And he helped he was like a founding member of their fintech practice. He joined Angela Strange and Anish Acharya, and he helped build out their fintech practice. So super interesting how he calls himself an accidental VC. So uh-huh. yeah, so he was there for two years as a partner, uh, backed now Decacorn deal, worked on a lot of deals there. And then he, I think it was kind of decided when he first started that it was only going to be a two-year thing, you know, and he just decided, okay, I want to do this on my own. So he launched Cabrian Ventures and he raised $20 million for this fund. He's looking to back fintechs at their earliest stages. We're talking angel, pre-seed and seed levels with checks up to $500,000. If I can reverse engineer a little bit about this decision now that I hear all this context, I wonder, he's not saying this, so we're not going to hold him accountable here, but I, I wonder if like he had to do this because Andreessen Horowitz has to play and kind of get bigger ownership percentages. Does he have to start his own fund and able to be doing those smaller checks? Maybe not a hot take, but I imagine Uh, that at this point, we're seeing like traditional VCs or more institutionalized VCs have to focus in on getting kind of specific returns. Being a solo GP in a way, you have a little bit more flexibility. You're still responsible to LPs, Mm -hmm. of course. But Mm -hmm. that was just like my first thought is like, why would you ever leave Andreessen Horowitz during a downturn? Maybe because you're not able to do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Or building off of that, well, we're going to theory craft, aka bullshitting. This is what we do on Slack, by the way, but now we're doing it out loud with you. Maybe he uh, had slightly less of an interest in doing Web3 investments in a fintech context and wanted to do more fintech investments in a fintech context because not everything has to be financialized. Some things just are. I think he always wanted to go this direction. And I think he he probably saw the value of joining Andreessen for a couple of years and builds his credibility, his network, all those things. I think this was part of his original plan to begin with. I don't think it was something that he did and it was just like, okay, I want to pivot. But speaking of pivots, one of the reasons he wanted to be a solo GP is he wants to be a really hands-on with the founders he works with. And he wants to be like that first check. He wants the founders to feel comfortable just to pivot if they need to. So I think he didn't feel like he could do that at Andreessen, but he can do that now as a solo GP with Cambrian Ventures. I'm super happy to see like just the phrase first check investors come back because I was talking to someone else the other day 
yesterday and he was saying how he's worried about this founder downturn of people who are getting laid off or who maybe were thinking about their next thing, kind of not doing that because the venture markets are so shaky these days. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important, literally signal wise, to have a first check investor close something. And Mm -hmm. I mean, diversity will be a huge Thing to watch here to see who he actually backs because I would hate for it to be just dudes and I'm not saying that that's the case but I think based on historical venture financing I would love for, for there to be some sort of like disruption in what gets funded in fintech. Yeah, I, I think we would all agree on that but I one thing I did fail to mention, he's got a kind of a who's who in fintech LP yes. base, you know he's got, I think there's some firms in there that he wasn't at liberty to mention that are LPs but also founders from companies such as NerdWallet, Plaid, Alloy, Jeeves, Betterment, Blend, Melio. So he's he's got a bunch of founders that are participating as LPs, which I think is also interesting because Rex has a reputation of, of really giving a shit about founders, you know, really. And these founders recognize that and they want to support it and they see that there might be potential returns for them in the long run. Let's extend our lens a little bit and talk about fintech investors more generally, because Marianne, this week you put together the latest in your, I think, quarterly kind of series of fintech investor surveys. I got to help edit this all like 8,000 words of it. Behemoth. It was a behemoth, guys. Not that I'm still scarred. Yeah. The TC Plus edit team was, yeah, I think everyone after this. But the, the good news, Marianne, is that the heft of answers wasn't filler. It was actually rather interesting. A lot of VCs had quite a lot to say. Mm-hmm. But just thinking about a solo GP in the fintech world, thinking about the rounds we're seeing, what was your vibe when all the answers came in from these investors? And what was your kind of like core takeaway? Well, a couple of quick thoughts. The last time I did this was in the first quarter, completely different market at the time. So questions, answers, everything was very different vibe. And you're right. One of the reasons this ended up being so long is that we actually got a lot of really good quality, thoughtful responses. It wasn't a bunch of jargon or buzzwords or, you know, like these self-serving quotes. A lot of these VCs gave some good feedback. What I heard from a lot of them is a lot of things we we already suspected that, you know, while think this is a downturn, it doesn't mean that things are dead, but definitely people have to be, founders need to be conservative, need to be careful. And good ideas, if they're good ideas, they're going to survive downturns. So, you know, and then another thing that we talked about is that a lot of companies last year started spreading themselves thin, I think, and going into 50 million different directions and trying to make money in so many different ways. And I think more than one investor pointed out that right now it's best to just kind of focus on doing at least one thing really, really well, making money off of that, getting good product market fit, and then thinking about moving into other revenue lines. When capital becomes more scarce, focus suddenly comes back into vogue. Natasha, (laughs) though, what was your key takeaway? Ooh, I mean, I definitely echoing Mary Ann, like I liked, I guess I expected the investors who have financial stakes in fintechs to say that they're still bullish (laughs) despite the downturn. And I always (laughs) find it so funny. I'm like, are you? And I still, I'm I'm always going to ask the question. So, but I think the thing that surprised me the most came from Nick Milanovic, who is the general partner from the fintech fund, which is based off of a very successful newsletter that he also created. Natasha, what does the fintech fund invest in? Is it ag tech? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's the least creative (laughs) name. Why don't you just call it the venture capital bucket of money we're going to put in some I, right. I'm like, I mean, that's definitely focus, right? Like what we're talking about. I work for the technology publication. I am writer and writer. Okay, I mean, the on. information guys, I mean, the information's a badass name, but it is just, it is information. 
Right. Well, you'll note it's, it doesn't say the correct information, just as the information. It could be the misinformation for all. I joke. I joke. We love everyone there. Just to be clear. Yeah. And, and Nick, Nick is awesome. He's super smart, kind guy. And I have to really quickly give him a shout out. And he okay. publishes this week in FinTech. The diversity of coverage and the people he features in his newsletters is absolutely incredible. He, they have meetups all over the world. So kudos to Nick for, for that diversity. Yeah. And he's one of the people that I was told to definitely subscribe to as I break into fintech. So that is on the list. But with that aside, one of his points really stood out to me. He kind of said that he thinks that the generic, quote, target runway and burn rate advice from VCs is overblown, not particularly useful, and to some extent misses the point. And that's a direct quote, basically saying that these things are important, but they do not guarantee a successive round. So if you do refocus and extend and and focus in on all your financials, but you don't have a unique product, Product, it's going to still be hard to raise again. That to me makes me a little bit more excited and it expands my my idea of what it means to be conservative mm-hmm. as a company right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Mike Volpe at Index actually wrote an op-ed about this issue of burn rates and so forth and kind of targeting and, and you know how to react to what people are saying about reducing your spend and so forth. It's a topic where we are seeing some dissent. And then Marianne, the thing that I wanted to pull out kind of echoes what you said, which is just that there are certain areas where product expansions could be weak. And we all know that fintech companies love to layer on products. It makes their overall customers worth more on a per basis. So CAC looks better and so forth. But as we see consumer credit tighten and people have an issue paying back their loans. We're seeing this in, uh, you know, card note default rates and credit card default rates and so forth. What does that do to startups that we're building a lot of the revenue growth off of the back of consumer lending? And, and, and I'm very curious about that. I don't know the answer to it, but it made me sit up and think about what fintechs out there may be growing more slowly this year than anticipated. Well, I think Brex is a, is an example I think it's important to note, though, that even though fintech funding has slowed down, it still makes up almost 20% of venture funding globally. It's not the only sector that's struggling right now. Look at crypto, which is sort of like under the fintech umbrella, but we kind of separated out lots of things happening in the crypto space these days. Yeah, I think crypto is uh, the doomer cousin of, uh, of fintech, which is fine. Everyone <laughs> needs to have the black sheep in the family. I kid, I kid. Anyways, we're talking about Celsius. You know, they're going through bankruptcy. They were kind of over leveraged, it appears, and they're being sued and all that's going on. But the, the world of crypto has a really interesting thing going on in it right now, which is that Coinbase is um, reported to be in the mix with the SEC about securities and what is security and what is not a security. And Natasha, this is a big deal in the world of crypto because there's been a, a lot of work done to say that these things aren't in many cases securities. And it turns out that some of them might be. I know. And the reason we're talking about it this week is because Coinbase is facing a probe into whether it let people trade digital assets that should have been registered as securities. And I'll be honest, I used to understand more about what was happening with Coinbase and regulation. Then it became this big beast that touched everything. And and so today I still think I would prefer if we start from square one a little bit, Alex. So can you kind of tell us where this controversy started and why this week this news really mattered enough to cover? Yeah. So there was an insider trading brouhaha over at Coinbase. The company cooperated with the American government on that. A former employee was essentially front-running the listing of certain tokens on the Coinbase platform. Caught, busted, fine. 
All that's good. No controversy there from the Coinbase and crypto side. However, at the same time, the SEC sued these people alleging securities fraud and saying that some of the tokens or digital assets, if you will, that they were trading were in fact securities. And what it did was apply the so-called Howey test, which dates back to an old Supreme Court ruling, which essentially says that if a person is putting money to work in a quote common enterprise and they expect to make money from that investment off of the labor of others, it's a security. And after reading the SEC suit and thinking about how they're considering these certain coins and tokens to be securities versus not Marianne, my read was that the SEC is correct. And Coinbase vehemently disagrees, and this is a big deal in the world of crypto, but it could seem to be that maybe many digital assets really are securities. Yeah, I think this is this is one of the challenging things about crypto where where like definitions are hard to to pin down and there's so many like blurred lines and and there's it's not a black and white sector. So I'm very curious to see what happens here because I think it could impact the crypto space as a whole very significantly. My, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I know at least one person listening right now has this question because I do. Um, and I'm thinking, like, why is it a bad thing for something to be considered a security here? Just going back even more to the basics, like, yeah, why would Coinbase get in trouble for something like this? It's a different regulatory burden. Okay. So if you have assets that are securities, they are treated differently under the rules and the laws. And crypto has, since the inception of Bitcoin, operated at least slightly apart to the world of traditional fintech, which is why we were joking earlier that it's kind of like the cousin of, of, of fintech, if you will. It's related, but slightly distinct. And then here is the SEC essentially saying, nah, I don't care if it's on the blockchain or on the NASDAQ, a security is a security is a security. And you can't just claim that because it has a different back end, that it's not the same substance. My analogy was like, you can't claim that something's not a dog because it's a golden retriever. I think the the headline was the headline of the week, to be clear, of the story. And thank you. That made a ton of sense. Equity is truly the place I go to like ask the questions. (laughs) So (laughs) this definitely clicks now. And so definitely another big moment for crypto regulation. And that's probably why everyone's reacting so viscerally. Well, there's one more nuance to this, which is that if these digital assets have been securities and those have rules about public disclosure of information and how you can trade them and all this stuff, how many people accidentally committed or accidentally, quote, quote, committed securities fraud Yeah, in the last decade? That's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, I just, this is just kind of, this is kind of nuts. I mean, it it very much feels like all of these are securities. I mean, by the definition in your piece, Alex, is that if you're trading something with the hope of making a profit, then it's considered a security. So doesn't that, by definition, make all of these digital asset securities? Or am I just like missing something? I mean, the struggle that I have here, Marianne, is just what you said. If you read how we define securities and you look at these things, they're securities. Exactly. And then, you know, the, the struggle is, do we want to declare them as such as a nation? Because right. we could say that there, there could be a different regulatory category for these things. I just don't see a reason to other than the fact that many people want them yeah. to do. This so is, I, I, mm. It's been the core debate in crypto for as long as I can remember over the past two years. So I guess not long, as long as I can remember. But the fact that we're seeing it kind of come to a head definitely feels like we're finally seeing the conversation go somewhere. And there will be whatever is decided eventually, right? Will will completely change the way we view crypto. I want to plug your show, Alex, too, your Equity Monday show about how India kind of keeps flip-flopping back and forth on crypto policy. Mm-hmm. Just a good listen to anyone who is interested in a little bit of like how these nuances play out and how this huge time span... Time 
time span? Timeline? Length of time. Length of time? (laughs) Period of time in which these tensions just bubble up in different ways. Yeah. I mean, on the India thing, we've seen essentially back and forth about will crypto be banned in India? Who wants to ban it? Taxation thereof. Entrepreneurs trying to thread an increasingly narrow needle, if you will. And here in the US, we're seeing the slow chug, chug, chug of government finally quasi catch up to where the industry was six, seven years ago. I don't think that means that people didn't possibly do bad things just because they were ahead of the curve. There's nuance there. And I'm sure the lawyers are going to eat this up. (laughs) Well, as they do all controversies, but ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. We got to go. There's a lot more to talk about next week. We are going to talk about geographies. We're going to talk about venture capital. There's tons going on. Mary and Natasha, as always a pleasure. Oh wait, earnings too. Crap. Yeah. (laughs) We we need to have a four hour show. I know we need, but, We'll do it all over again next week. We'll do it all over again next week. So at a minimum, we'll see you on Monday. You may see us over the weekend if we can get that done. Hugs, goodbye. Bye. Bye. 